We are continuing our study through the book of Luke, and we're going to backtrack just a little bit. Uh, There were some passages, uh, a couple of verses about John the Baptist that we kind of skipped over a little bit, and I want us to go back and get a look a little more carefully at those. Last week, we talked about Zacharias quite a bit, and uh, we're probably not done with him. I think the... uh, We'll get back to him next week, but this week I want us to just take a moment and look at John the Baptist, because there are certain things said about him to Zacharias. Uh, The angel appears to him and says certain promises. John the Baptist is going to be a particular kind of person, and we should look at that, because what the angel says about John is that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Greatness in the sight of God is a rather interesting thing. We kind of have our own definition of what we think greatness might be. And then God has his view of what greatness is going to be. And what's interesting, of course, is we can look at the entire life of John the Baptist. It's, we're going to see it, uh, not necessarily the whole thing this morning, but it's right there. You can see it in Luke. Well, as we go through this book, you'll, you'll see John's life. And once more, we might look at it and say from an earthly perspective, that's what a great life looks like? This is what God thinks a great life looks like? And the answer is yes. Yes, this is what God thinks a great life looks like. Now, we might look at it and say, all right, now, if we were going to make John great, uh, we would certainly make sure that John got born into a wealthy household and had plenty of money at his disposal. I mean, I don't know how in the world you're going to be great without a lot of money. But the fact is, John is born into a, as far as we can tell, fairly normal, standard, um, if anything, probably a little more on the poor than the rich side, within the nation of Israel. His dad is a priest, Um, we know that, Zacharias, right? He's in there giving the sacrifice when he gets told here. He's burning the incense. But there's no indication that he's in any way outstanding or wealthy or or would at all be remarked upon other than that he is one of the 18,000 priests within the nation and um, remarkable in so much as he and his wife are having a child in their old age. But other than that, we would know nothing about them. John? If you're going to be great, now, if you're going to make your way in this world and you're going to be someone, you've got you've to live somewhere prominent. You know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur here, if you're going to make it in the tech industry, you better move to, I don't know, San Francisco. You better, you better get into Silicon Valley. You, you better, I don't know, New York City. or You better get to a city of prominence. And you've got to make the right connections here. You've got to, you've got to be somebody. Um, John, for you, you need to grow up in Jerusalem. I mean, you, you need to you mean, make the right connections here. Get to know the right people. Your dad's a priest. Get in there and get to know the priests. Get to know the priesthood. Maybe you get to know the high priest. Maybe, maybe you can work your way into, you know, getting into the right school and sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, like next to Saul of Tarsus. You know, come on, John, you're going to be somebody. You're going to be great. Um... John doesn't do any of that. In fact, all it says is that he grows up in the hill country of Judea. The hill country. Um, when, it, when it gives 
the one place in verse 39 of this chapter, Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus, she is going to, and we'll, we'll get to her, not today, but we'll get to her. She's going to arise, having the, the spirit and the angel speaking to her, and she's going to run with haste to the hill country, is what it says, to a city of Judea, doesn't even name it, and enters the house of Zacharias and greets Elizabeth. What city is that? It doesn't even say. It's, it's so unremarkable, a city that John is growing up, they wouldn't know the name of it. It's in the hill country. It's a city. John, you're going to try to be great here. You're going to be great. And you live in a city we don't even know the name of, over there in the hill country of Judea. That's, that's it. We don't know where you go to school. We don't know what town you grow up in. We don't, we don't know what kind of connections you make. You, you're not, John, this, look, you've got to go to a Fortune 500 you know, go, go to a school, an Ivy League school where the Fortune 500 kids go so that you can be a roommate with some guy that is a nobody, but he's going to be a somebody. He, he's going to grow up and be a senator or, or who knows what, you know, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and you'll be able to say, I knew him back when he was just my roommate in college. John, you've you got to go meet these people. That's not what John does. He doesn't do that. In fact, What it says at the end of this chapter, the last verse, verse 80, it's a fairly long chapter. The child, this is John, continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He lives in the deserts. So John's greatness in the sight of God has nothing to do with his money. He doesn't have any, not that we know of. It doesn't come from his great connections. He doesn't seem to have any of those either. It doesn't come from the prominent hometown that he grew up in. We don't even know the name of his town that he grew up in. John's greatness is going to come from his personal character, from his willingness to do whatever God asks him to do. He's going to be great in the sight of God because he is a willing servant to just do what God says. No matter what that ha- whatever the results are of that, whether that brings him prominence and fame or whether it puts him out in the desert where nobody even knows him. doesn't matter. Either one of those are fine with John. John is humble. His greatness is his humility. He doesn't really care what people think of him. He's raised clearly by older parents, right? They're in their older years. Um, they probably pass away when he's not that old, maybe a teenager or so. Uh, there's no record of his family life. There's no record of, you know, um, we do know that his dad was a priest. So clearly he was familiar with the law of Moses and understood the old covenant. Without a doubt, I'm sure that he went to Jerusalem because that would have, he'd have been called to do that. I'm sure he was circumcised at the eighth day like he was supposed to be. And I'm sure he went up for the annual feast when he was supposed to. But he lived in obscurity. No one knew who he was other than he was the son of that old couple that we can hardly believe actually had kids. Um, He's he's not a priest. He doesn't, there's no indication here that he's raised, even though the priestly line occurs because of who your parents, who your dad is in particular, there's no indication John's a priest. He, he, he doesn't make any of those connections. He doesn't seem to be striving to make any of those connections. He's not prominent. And he has no desire, nor is he in any way seeking out to become prominent, to make a name for himself. 
There's no indication John is trying to make a name for himself at all. In fact, there's every indication that John is doing the exact opposite. He is deliberately living in obscurity. He's living a godly life, an extremely godly life. Um, because God has chosen him. In fact, that's what the verse says, right? He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's yet in his mother's womb. Really? Yes. Chosen before he's even born, which, by the way, should help straighten out the whole abortion issue for anyone who actually reads the Bible and understands God's position on it. I mean, obviously, this is a person. John is filled with the Spirit before he's even born. This is actually a fairly common thing for many of the servants of God. This, this, we can look at a number of passages. Samson in Judges 13, 7. The angel speaks and says to his mother, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and like John... He will not drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. The boy will be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. He is chosen from the womb. He is chosen before he's even born. God has chosen him. God tells Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, 44, verse 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord. I am the maker of all things. I stretch out the heavens by myself. I spread out the earth all alone. In, verse, in chapter 49, God says to him, Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant and to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. I am, Isaiah speaking, I am honored in the sight of God and my God is my strength. Why? Because he formed me in the womb. Jeremiah, third guy, Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I separated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God has no problem choosing people before they're even born. Paul will say this, the great apostle Paul in Galatians 1. When he set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. And was pleased to reveal his son to me. God is involved in the lives of his saints before they're even born. You can, um, you know, on the whole issue, and we won't dig into it deeply at all this morning, but, you know, on that whole sovereignty of God, will of man situation thing there, you might want to bring these verses and uh, pour them into that mix. Here these people are who have no choice at all, and God has chosen them from their mother's womb. John, in fact, is actually filled with the Spirit while in his mother's womb. We'll see when Mary shows up at the house. I won't keep reading that passage there where Mary went to the hill country. When she walks in and greets Elizabeth, who is now six months pregnant with John, John will leap in her womb at the very voice of Mary. John will. Why? Because John is in his mother's womb. He's a person filled with the Spirit even then. I want to just mind away all that and a number of issues to help us think biblically about a variety of issues. John is a transitional figure. 
God is well aware that he is about to move from the old covenant to the new. The nation of Israel, they're not quite up to speed on that. They've got to get up to speed. God is well aware that that's what's going to happen. And John is the person who reignites the revelation of God. Up to John, when the angel appears to Zacharias, an angel has not appeared to anybody in 500 years. God has only spoken to a prophet 400 years prior. So there's been this huge gap in which nothing has occurred. The nation is just kind of doing their thing. And now suddenly God is speaking. And God has called and talked to Zacharias. And John is going to be this person. He's got this specific role. This is another thing why John is a great person in the sight of God. He is going to be unlike any other prophet. The Old Testament prophets spoke to the Old Testament saints. John is the last Old Testament prophet, but he's going to introduce the new covenant figure of Jesus. This is what he's doing. So it is important, and I think this is probably part of the reason why John is kind of outside of the priestly system. He's not going to just be a priest. He's not going to go to the temple and carry out all those things. The temple is shortly going to be done. The temple is going to be over with. This whole sacrificial system is going to be done away with. John is not going to be part of that system. So he's not going down there. He's outside of the system. And he's going to live this very simple life. He's going to live like the prophets. He's going to live a very disciplined life. In fact, he's going to refrain from consuming any of the fruit of the vine. He's not going to consume any kind of alcohol. He's not going to consume wine or strong drink, which, by the way, are two separate things in the ancient world. Wine, pretty much everybody drank wine. The the water was terrible. The water over there is still terrible. It just has bacteria and things growing in it. So you would mix wine with the water, generally about eight to one. So there's no no fear of drunkenness here. And the water tasted better and it killed a lot of the parasites and stuff. Strong drink, however, was not just straight wine. Strong drink was a beverage which served the single purpose of bringing about intoxication. If you drank it, it's because you wanted to get intoxicated. So John doesn't drink either of these. Why? Well, because John is going to grow up outside of the system, John is going to be called upon to condemn the system, to call them all to repentance. That's what he's going to be doing. So he needs to be flawless. He needs to be without any kind of hook that people can get into him. He's going to have to live a life in which they're not going to be able to say, well, John, you know, you just must have drank a little too much and obviously you've been seeing stuff in your... No, John doesn't even touch wine at all, let alone strong drink. From his youth, he doesn't do this. This is now going to be known to everyone. And these are things, particularly the drinking of the wine, cut eight to one with the water. I mean, everybody did that. It was just standard. I mean, that was the way life went. You had to really go out of your way to not do that. John went out of his way. John was determined to live a life separated from the normal pleasures of life. He's going to grow in a way in which everyone is going to look at him and say, this, you know, this guy is unique. This, this guy has got a, the call of God on his life. Well, he does. He's filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Uh, and the Spirit isn't going anywhere. So as John goes to the temple, 
which I'm sure he did every Sabbath, and he hears the reading of the scripture, he's got the Spirit of God giving him insight into how this goes. John is not a figure who, he's not a Pharisee. The Pharisees were wrong. The Pharisees view that the way to get a right relationship with God was to do all of these commands. John doesn't believe that. That doesn't mean that John doesn't bring the sacrifices or that he doesn't participate in the sacrificial system. He certainly did because that was what was required of them, but he didn't see that as the way of salvation. Because it wasn't the way of salvation. John would have completely understood that. So John has got this great humility. He's living this disciplined life. He's outside the system. He he has chosen to live a life in which when his enemies come after him, and they will try, he's just humble. he's, He's not looking for greatness. He's not living in Jerusalem and trying to make a name for himself. And he is going to appear out of nowhere. He is going to come out of the wilderness and begin to preach that this nation needs to bring about repentance. We need to repent. And when they try to come after him, and they will try to come after him, you know what? His humility is going to be like a shield. It's going to be really clear that John is not trying to make a name for himself. This is another thing that makes John great in the sight of God. God needs someone who is going to promote Jesus. God needs someone who is going to direct everyone to Jesus. John needs a, God needs a prophet, though, who can do that. Well, John is the guy. John is going to show up, and he's going to start preaching, and he is going to get a crowd. People are going to flock to the Jordan to hear John, to hear his message, and they're going to repent. And he's going to baptize them to repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're going to come. And John is going to have this huge following. John is going to have lots of people who are disciples of John. What's he going to do with them? Well, what John is going to do with them, and we see this clearly, this is exactly what John is going to do with them, is he is going to get them to follow Jesus. He's going to tell them, no, I am not the Messiah. I'm not that prophet. I am not the guy you're looking for. That's not me. And when Jesus shows up, he's going to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and when everyone starts leaving John, he's going to say, no, that's, that's, that's what I'm here for. That's why I came. I came here to get people to follow him. This is what makes John's ministry so great. Can you imagine? You, you get called to be the pastor of this massive megachurch. And your job is to show up and to get everyone to go someplace else. Actually, I think I've met guys like that. I, not on purpose. So. What, what kind of a ministry is this? What do you mean? You want me to gather up this huge crowd and then get them to follow someone else? Oh, and, and wait a minute. When they follow, the someone else they're following is my younger cousin. Six months younger than me. My cousin. <clears throat> Have you ever actually read Genesis and paid attention to the family relationships on how that all goes there in Genesis and the nation of Israel? And, um, you know, they have this, we, we have this term. It's called <clears throat> sibling rivalry. Yeah, yeah, I mean, have you looked at, um, you know, Ishmael and Isaac? How'd that all go? Mm, not so well, Right? How about Jacob and Esau? How'd, how'd that go? 
uh, what do you know, not so well. Well, surely Jacob's kids, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Joseph, that's right. How did that go? Not so well. I mean, it just, it just kind of keeps going, right? This is, this is a nation. Okay, well, surely Moses, he did okay, right? Uh, who was Moses' older sister? Who was it that put him in there in the, in the river? Yeah, Miriam, yeah. And how about Miriam and Moses? Yeah, as I recall, she ended up with leprosy, remember? Because she had a problem with Moses being, who does Moses think he is to be in charge anyway? He's just my kid brother. Uh, yeah, that didn't go so well. Particularly didn't go so well for Miriam. The prodigal son. The whole point, you know, that, that parable is not actually the parable of the prodigal son. That is the parable of the elder brother. The elder brother was very upset that his younger brother, who ran off and spent the inheritance on riotous living, he comes back and we killed the fatted calf for him. Hey, you never killed the fatted calf for me. Uh, so when John who is six months older than his cousin Jesus, gets this huge big crowd and says, you know what? I gathered you all here today to follow him. You know, that is pretty amazing. You look at the history of the nation of Israel and you look at how all of those family relationships all worked out. It's it's astounding. You're kidding me. John actually did that? Yes, John actually did do that. John, in fact, when they came to him and said, hey, John, all your followers are following him. He must increase, I must decrease. John understood that his role was to break the mold. We've got to stop this whole rivalry thing. We've got to cut this out. This is not how God is working. John has to stand up and say, it's not my kingdom. I am not up here trying to get John's ministry going. I am not up here trying to get followers of John. My job is to preach the words of God. To stand up and say, thus says the Lord. I want you to follow the Lord. And oh, by the way, he is the Lord. Follow him. John's okay with people leaving him and following Jesus. No other prophet, no other prophet had this calling on their life. I mean, at least the Old Testament prophets, even Jonah, who certainly had no desire whatsoever for Nineveh to repent, they all repented at his preaching. You know, at least the great prophet Jonah had all these folks who repented when he preached to them. And he wasn't happy about that, but it was to his credit. He obeyed the word of God. John, John, I'm still here, by the way, and I want you all to follow him. This is what makes John great in the sight of God. John is not a seeker of glory. John is not one who is is simply trying to get everyone to say what a great guy he is. John will come, as the passage goes on to say, he will come in the spirit of Elijah. He's not going to drink any wine. He's going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as this forerunner before him, and that is before God, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He is going to go forth in the spirit of Elijah. Well, what was the spirit of Elijah? 
How, how did Elijah work out? All right, you go back to 1 Kings 17, right? 1 Kings 17, we have this, this guy. He's a king. His name is Ahab. Yes, that is where Melville got the name for Moby Dick and the big white whale and Ahab. But no, he got it from there. God didn't get it from there, right? Melville got it from there. Same name. Way back here, Old Testament. Ahab. Who was he? Wicked. Wicked. I mean, this guy was so wicked. In 1 Kings 16, it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He married Jezebel the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. And he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. In fact, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Ashtoreth. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And all the kings of Israel before him were all wicked. In fact, every king of Israel, not Judah now, once the kingdom divides under Solomon... Rehoboam follows in the south, Jeroboam in the north. And from Jeroboam until the Assyrians drag him off, every king in the place is wicked. No repentance for the northern tribes. But the most wicked of the whole bunch is this guy, Ahab. Terrible, terrible guy. Now, so here's Elijah. Elijah is just a guy, he's a country guy. You read about Elijah, he just kind of comes out of obscurity, much, by the way, like John the Baptist. He just kind of comes out of obscurity. He shows up, Elijah the Tishbite, he's just of the settlers of Gilead. He walks into the royal court, walks up to Ahab and says this to him, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I am here to pronounce judgment on you, you wicked king. You've had it. God is ready to have it out with you. An enormously bold statement. It's not going to rain until I say so. Wow. Where where did you get that from, Elijah? Where did you get such power? Where did you get such boldness? Where, where, Where did you get the right to stand up and to look out of the Pharisees and say, you bunch of snakes and vipers, which is exactly what John will say, because he speaks in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah showed up to Ahab and just had it out with him. John shows up to the religious leaders of his day and has it out with them. Where did he get this idea, though? Well, Deuteronomy. God told him in Deuteronomy. He said, it shall come about if you do not obey, Deuteronomy 28, the Lord your God to observe his commandments and all that he says to you in his statutes. Well, then there's going to be this list of curses that are going to come upon you. You'll be cursed in the city. You'll be cursed in the country. Your your fields will be cursed. Your cattle will be cursed. Your reproduction will be cursed. You'll have less kids. You'll end up mentally confused in the land. You're going to have just general failure at anything you try. Pestilence is going to consume you. Consumption is going to come after you. You're going to have fevers, inflammation. The sword is going to come and wipe you out. You're going to have blight and mildew. And just, it's just, it's going to go terrible. Oh, and by the way, verse 23, the heavens which are over you will be like bronze. And the earth which is under you is going to be like iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. 
from heaven. It will come down upon you until you're destroyed. So Elijah looks at the passage, looks at Ahab, says, you know what? I think it's time to be really specific here. Uh, we're going to look at this as a prophet of God, and uh, I'm gonna, uh, we're going we're gonna to make it really clear here, Ahab. God said that if you act wickedly, it's not going to rain. So it's not going to rain. Uh, James will say this, the James 5, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, but he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it didn't rain for three years and six months. God heard the voice of Elijah because he looked at the passage and said, this directly, specifically applies to this exact situation. So I'm going to implore God to not have it rain. And God listened. The fervent prayer of this righteous man availed much. And God withheld the rain, fearless. And he finally meets up with Ahab after the three and a half years of no rain. Ahab sees Elijah and says to him, Ahab says to Elijah, is this you, you troubler of Israel? Boy, you've given us a hard time. And what does Elijah say? Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's not what he says. This is the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah looks at Ahab and says, I haven't troubled Israel. You and your father's house have because you've forsaken the commands of God and followed after the Baals. Put this on me. This lack of rain for the last three and a half years, this is your fault. You're wicked. And you need to repent. So here's what I want you to do. Gather up 400 prophets of, 450 prophets of Baal. Get them up on the top of Mount Carmel. We'll, we'll see exactly whose God is God here. And of course, we, we know the story, right? You guys got more guys. You build your altar and you, you get. So they do. They built their altar. And the God who answers by fire is the true God. So around noontime, no answer. So what does Elijah do? This is the spirit of Elijah. Elijah mocks them and says, oh, come on, call out with a loud voice. You've you, you got a God you're serving here, right? Maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's off on some trip somewhere. Um, maybe he's asleep and you need to wake him up. I mean, come on. What kind of God have you got here? This is the power and the spirit of Elijah. Bold. Bold. Right there. Of course, God does answer, Right? Elijah prays, Lord, answer me so that this people may know what? Not that I'm a great guy. Not that I'm this wonderful prophet. Not not that, boy, aren't I somebody. Not that somebody prays. He says, answer, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. So that you will turn their heart back to you. And then the fire fell. And consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And, and when all the people saw it, you know what they did? They fell on their face and they said, The Lord, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Elijah turned the people back to God. So will John. So will John. He comes in the spirit of God. He, he turns people away from the world, away from the walk they're walking, and he turns them to God. Why? Because John lives a life that allows him to preach this message with authenticity. He's going to preach repentance. You need to turn. You need to turn from trusting yourself to trusting God. You need to turn yourself from the road you've been walking down where you're trusting your good works and what a great person you were and and how nice you are. None of that's going to get you anywhere with God. You need to turn and say, I am a wicked sinner in the sight of God. 
And I am here to find the forgiveness that only God can bring. He's going to draw a very bright line. You need to stand on one side or the other. You're either going to trust your works and you're going to trust your, your, all of the stuff that you're doing that you somehow think is going to, I don't know what, twist God's arm. You need to stop. That's, that doesn't work. All of those of you who think that, you're a bunch of snakes and vipers and vicious hypocrites. You can't really do it right anyway. That's what he's going to call him. That's what he's going to tell him. He's going to say, what you've got to do is you've got to come over here and you've got to repent. And you've got to look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to follow him. You need to stop facing this way and start facing this way. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning around. You have to turn around. You have to stop facing one direction and face the other direction. You can't face two directions at once. You can't do it. Jesus was clear in the Sermon on the Mount. You just can't serve the world and serve God. If you love the world, you don't love God. You have to make a choice. John is going to ask them to make a clear choice. There's going to be a a specific message. You must face your sin and then turn to God. This is a New Testament concept. Acts 9.35. All those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw and they turned to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Peter, 1 Peter, you were continuously straying by sh- like sheep, but now you have returned. You have turned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. So this is John's mission. This is what John is here to do. The Malachi passage once more. Behold, I'm going to send you this Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. There's going to be reconciliation here. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. He is going to arrive. So they're going to ask John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, they're going to ask him then, well, well who are you? I, are you Elijah? And he's going to say, no, I'm, I'm not actually Elijah. No, I'm not, I, well, are you the prophet? Nope, not him. Are you, are you the one who is coming? You know, the Messiah. Are you that one? No. Well, who are you? So that we can tell the people who sent us, these people from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. What, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's all. Make straight the ways for the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. Now, these who had been sent were from the Pharisees. I am nobody I am just this voice crying in the wilderness. I'm not even identified. It's just the prophet out in the wilderness. That's me. Jesus will speak to a crowd in Matthew chapter 11. Um, Jesus will speak to the crowds about John and say to them, so when you went out into the wilderness, what exactly is it you went out to see anyway? Did you go out to just see a, like a reed shaking in the wind, you know, this, this flimsy little thing that the slightest breeze can move it? Is that when you went out to see? What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a guy who was dressed in, in all kinds of soft clothing and, you know, a, a guy who's really wealthy and, and well-dressed and, and just, uh, he's very pleasing to the eye. Is that what you went out to see? Uh, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. And John is certainly not growing up in a king's palace. What did you go out to see? You were not to see a prophet. That's when you were out to see. And I, yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. He's not just a prophet. He's an actual transitional figure here. 
He's going to be a prophet who will lead people to the truth about the Messiah. No one else had actually been called like that. No one else had that ministry to decrease while Jesus increased. That's John's, that's what he was called to do. So this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Ahead of who? God. Who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Why? Why why is there no one greater than John the Baptist? His humility makes him great. His ministry is to get people to leave him. I'm going to convince you all of the truth, and then I want you to go follow that guy. Okay, what? Really? Yes, that is John's job. John's job is to be the greatest prophet ever who then proceeds to put himself out of business. That's his job. His job is to get everyone to follow Jesus. And then he will be arrested and he will be beheaded. That will be his life. And I don't think he lives all that long. He's fairly young. He doesn't have this great and glorious ministry with lots of people who love him and care for him and take care of him. And He doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have any of that. He gets up. He speaks God's word to a generation, most of whom don't really want to hear it. He does gather crowds, which is good. He sets, John actually builds the foundation that Jesus and the apostles will build on. Those who repent under John's preaching, well, none of the apostles could be an apostle unless they'd been there since the time of John. So John's laying the foundation for the church. He does lay the ministry for the new covenant. It's a tremendous position to be in. He gets to introduce Jesus to the nation. What a great privilege. But it doesn't really accrue to him in this life. So he is this great, great prophet. He is completely successful in what he's called to do. It works. He does exactly what God asks him to do. He introduces Jesus and he brings the sons of Israel to repentance. Not all of them. The whole nation doesn't repent for sure. But there is a foundation, enough people. This is how God works. If we want to be great in the sight of God, learn to be the servant of all. And that's what Jesus says. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, just be a servant. Don't, don't look for prominence. Don't look for everyone to say your name. Don't, don't look to be, you know, that, that is not greatness in the kingdom of God. John didn't get any of that. What John got was a lot of grief, a lot of people who really disliked him. It's okay. John spoke the truth. We live in a society and in a world that, as we all know, is by the day getting darker. And to speak the truth is continuously becoming more risky all the time. We must speak the truth. We must be great in the sight of God. And frankly, whether the world thinks we're great or not is irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. We must speak truth. We must have compassion on sinners and teach and show them the love of God by speaking the truth of God so that they can find the forgiveness of God. That's the gospel In order to get the good news, you have to give the bad news. And the bad news is we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Okay, but here's the good news. God has sent a Savior to rescue sinners. And as soon as you'll admit you're a sinner, you can turn to God and have a Savior. That's the gospel. 
We need to preach that. We need to preach that clearly and loudly and unashamedly. And we will be great in the sight of God. And that's really all that matters, right? It's greatness in the sight of God. We don't care about the greatness in the sight of men. It's irrelevant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the marvelous example of John the Baptist. Thank you for his willingness to give up so many things, to not just live an average life and kind of keep his head down and make sure he doesn't draw any attention to himself and just kind of go through life in total obscurity, and that's not him. He started deliberately in the desert so that when he appeared, it would be the voice of one literally crying in the wilderness. Thank you, Lord, that he was willing to risk everything. He was, in fact, arrested. He spoke to the, relig- to the political leaders of his day as well as the, the religious leaders, and they imprisoned him for it. And still he remained faithful. Lord, I pray that that would be a great example to us all. In your sight, this is what greatness looks like. And to this day, now, in heaven, oh, the great reward John has. And what a great servant of yours he is. May he be an example to all of us. May we strive to seek the greatness that is great in your sight. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.